Well, welcome to episode 27 of CFX. This is entitled Donna Summer, as you might have guessed from the intro. But by the way, uh, uh, Pat Benatar is claiming that Neil Geraldo should get credit for producing uh, that uh, 80s sounding. She worked hard for the money. Just kidding. That's right. <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome. Uh, this is CFX, where we do this thing where we examine a different cultural ephemera, music, movies, TV, cartoons. Um, in the future, it will be other sort of maybe books even, you know, that's a hint of something maybe to come. And we dive into the context of the time that they came out, what's happened since our take on the future valuation of the item in terms of if you should go long, value will go up, you go short, the value will go down or basically stays the same. 
in a fake stock markety kind of way. So here we are, Donna Summer, the queen of disco. What do you have to say about that, Slip? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt uh, that she's the queen of disco. And I think she is so inextricably tied with disco with most of her major uh, works occurring during the disco golden age. And she also really, along with Giorgio Moroder, helped form the genre, right? She was one of the earliest uh, proponents of the genre and is a symbol and is inextricably tied with disco. So we're not only going to talk about Donna Summer, we're going to talk about disco in general and kind of set the scene with, you know, kind of defining what disco is, go a little bit into how it was created and the the culture around it. And then a little bit of the backlash that happened, right? So, um, this will kind of set the scene for Donna Summer because I think it's, in a, you know, obviously she had a couple of hits. You know, we played uh, She Works Hard for the Money. One of her actual pretty biggest hits uh, was in 1983. And that is, of course, not in the disco era. But for the most part, her major success, almost all of her major success, her most significant stuff is all between 75 and 80, really. So that's why we want to kind of talk about disco as well in this context. Because even, you know, you have the artists like the Bee Gees who are symbolic of disco and have become kind of tied with disco. They actually have a lot more uh, other stuff, you know, mainly before in the 60s right. that is also significant. So really with Donna Summer, there really isn't. I think even the 80s stuff is it pales in significance to the disco stuff. And if you ask anybody, you know, about Donna Summer, they're going to associate her with the late 70s and disco. Right. Yeah. I mean, other than maybe early MTV viewers with, you know, she worked hard for the money, but for the most part, I think that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, It's kind of the exception that that proves the rule. And she had a couple of other top 10 hits in the 80s as well that aren't as remembered. But, you know, yeah, I think that's kind of the exception. Uh, because that song is kind of iconic and we will be talking about that song and the video, which are also pretty iconic um, as part of our evaluation of Donna Summer. Um, but I think most of our talk is going to be centered around her golden era where she was absolutely huge uh, when she was selling the most records, when she had a bunch of number one songs and won all the Grammys, et cetera, um, it, which is during 75 to 80 right. is the majority of what we're going to be talking about. So. Let's talk about that, disco. Let's talk about disco. Okay. So disco, what is disco? Well, disco is a kind of music that is really, I think more than any other kind of music associated with a very specific place and time, even though there are disco songs now still that could be called disco. They're not really thought of as disco. They might be thought of more as R and B or funk. Uh, but during 1975 and 1980, I think these these genres were blurred um, because disco was so prominent. Now, what, how would we characterize disco music? Um, what what is what is involved in disco music? What kind of sets it apart from some of the other genres that might be close to it? Um, you know, obviously, it's completely about dancing, right? right? Most disco songs are about dancing. I mean, you have something like "I Will Survive" that's got you know kind of Uh, lyrics that are more personal and you know aspirational but then you have stuff like the bg songs like night fever and and uh you should be dancing right and um 
you know, Donna Summer has songs that are more about, there's also lyrics about sexuality, right? There's a lot of sex. I mean, disco and the sexy 70s go hand in hand, which is part of the reason why we want to cover it, because we always have to hit the sexy 70s on our show. Right. Um, so what what else would characterize disco? Well, I think the other thing is... Um, well, uh, just on that about the dancing, it's not just dancing, but it's um, accomplished dancing. Right. There's a lot of disco contests where people would, you know, compete in who could do the most outrageous, elaborate dance routines. And we talked about that a little bit in the What's Happening episode with the Daddy Disco Dynamite uh, contest, stuff like that. So it wasn't just dancing. It was like elaborate dancing and choreographed dancing and couples roller skate dancing disco. Like it it was all. Yeah. Roller boogie was also popular. Right. So roller skating and, and disco oriented roller skating yeah. um, was also popular. But as far as the music itself, I mean, obviously one of the signature things is, you know, it's funky, it's danceable, it's got a beat, but it has this kind of pulsating hi-hat, this kind yeah. of open closing hi-hat is the signature. Now, not all songs that have that are disco, but that is very much characteristic of disco. And we'll talk about some of the artists that weren't disco that did disco songs. They almost all had that beat to it. And there's usually some kind of orchestration, not always. But it's uh, or maybe early synthesizer is also uh, there. Um, What else would you say musically uh, would be something that would be disco characteristic? I think a lot of repetition in the beat and the music is is very disco-y, right? It's it's loopy. Uh, And and something that I think we'll get into later, right, where, you know, EDM music is is a natural successor to a lot of this stuff. Similar in that regard, right, where it's just like luring people into a trance almost where it's yeah. repetitive hypnotic, hypnotic. Yeah. yeah that kind of thing right yeah that's a really good point and we'll talk about edm because we're going to talk about one song by donna summer that is very influential on that kind of music but yeah it's repetition you know you you need to have the beat be consistent and that's when you also start to see djs do mixing and in fact donna summer's bad girls and donna summer's greatest hits albums the songs bleed into uh or on the radio her greatest hits album from 1979 the, the songs bleed into each other so it's a continuous kind of track right and she has a lot of that and of course she had very long songs in her early period which we'll talk about so that's it obviously culturally you know you have the whole disco fashions right you have like guys with the you know the unbuttoned shirts the medallions you had the three-piece suit like john travolta has in saturday Night fever yeah. you had the dorothy hamill hair and the woman with the off the shoulder kind of dress there's pictures of my mom and dad i'll be talking about that uh from that period they were heavily into this um which is pretty funny uh, well i would also say you mentioned this before but i'll just reiterate here the location like th- this was, you know, if you watch, um, you know, Saturday Night Fever and, you know, the stuff around that, the, the disco clubs of New York and Long Island and stuff like that, this was birthed in certain places. And I, I don't know if it was exclusively in New York, obviously in Europe and other places this was going on, too. But this wasn't like a universal phenomenon springing up organically all over the place. There were certain epicenters that then it spread out from. And I th- think certainly New York was one of them. There are others. Yeah, New York was about. one of the earliest. Yeah. yeah. And and it, so New York was one of the earliest. And then there, yeah, in Europe, there were, keep in mind, there were these disco techs. The word discotheque predates disco. Sure. And it was in the late 60s and early 70s, there were these dance clubs, but it started to build. And we'll talk, so we might as well just get into that, right? So um, really, disco as it 
developed and, and its genesis is inextricably tied really with the gay uh, rights movement, right? So one of the uh, major moments in, in um, the history of this movement is the Stonewall incident, the Stonewall riot. So this was a, an incident that happened in 1969 in a New York club called Stonewall. And this was a club where gay you know, men meant to, meant, met to dance to, with each other. And for a time period in New York and actually in the U.S., dancing with same-sex partners was actually illegal. And um, even when it, I know it's so ridiculous, right? Even when it was made legal, clubs would try to put it in their rules. Like they would try to get, you know, basically prevent it from, so it was, it wasn't illegal, but it was de facto illegal. They would basically try to prevent people from dancing. So these gay clubs kind of sprung up. By the way, which is so stupid, not only, you know, morally or whatever, but just from a business point of view, it's just like, you have all these people, all these gay men who want to dance together and you're preventing them from doing that instead of saying, hey, why don't we actually encourage this and make a lot of money from having, you know, a very popular gay club? It just seemed very anti-commercial in a weird way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's really stupid. And it's like what, you know, to us, it's just insane. Right. Yeah. I mean, but they had, you know, you couldn't have a, you know, mixed race couple dance either. And, you know, it's again, it's the same thing. Like, what the hell? Right. So so these clubs started a lot of them in New York. There were, uh, you know, and they kind of started. In re- so Stonewall was a, was an instance where police raided the club. They wanted to search people. People wouldn't let them. There was this riot. And that became this landmark event. And shortly after that, a bunch of underground clubs started kind of being created in New York to, you know, from a business perspective, to cater to these people, and also from a rights perspective, probably the people believed in it. There was a guy named Nicky, uh, David Mancuso, who was a proprietor. He created this club called The Loft. There was another club called The Gallery, who fe- featured a very famous DJ, uh, you know, uh, named Nicky Ciano, The Pavilion, these clubs. And and these were very early 70s. And they so there wasn't really disco mute records like we think of in the glory years in 75 to 80, but they were using like stuff like jazz fusion and like kind of, you know, a soul music where the songs were longer. So there were a lot of these deep cuts they would play and uh, it was just to keep the crowd moving. So it was kind of interesting. One of the first people to kind of make really long R and B songs like this was obviously there was James Brown, right? James Brown had dance music. If you listen to the song sex machine, you can actually hear uh, that hi-hat, that kind of open and closed hi-hat that forms a disco sound. And obviously James Brown is eminently danceable. And then you had someone like Isaac Hayes, who had more orchestration, um, who had really long kind of crazy cover versions of songs like Walk On By, you know, made the, the um, a Burt Bacharach, you know, How David Hit for, D, uh, for um, what's her name? Uh, Dionne Warwick. Yeah. Right. So he covered that and it's like 20 minutes long or something ridiculous. Right. And, and it just kind of has this beat. And then, of course, he had the theme from Shaft, which is this long opening that could be called disco. You know, it's got the horns. It's got the orchestration. It's got the kind of wah wah crazy guitar. Um, and that was kind of early stuff. And then you had this African music. Uh, this uh, artist named Manu Dibongo created this song called Sal Makosa. And this song was played in clubs. And this DJ named Frankie Crocker started playing it on the radio. This is the song that has the line that Michael Jackson used and want to be starting something. Mama say, mama saw, mama kusa, right? Yeah. So that is an original song that Michael Jackson kind of vocally sampled. Um, and at the same time, you had someone like Barry White. His stuff, again, very lush, orchestrated this song theme. 
that is instrumental that, you know, everybody's heard. We're not going to play it, but you've heard it. Trust me. It's it's a it's kind of a and, and that became made. So some of these songs like Shaft and Barry White and Manu Dibango became mainstream. And then you had the Hughes Corporation with Rock the Boat. And then around 75, you come out with Love to Love You, Baby. Donna Summer was one of the first ones. So that's kind of the stuff that ushered in the disco era. So it was these long songs. They started to be played on the radio a little bit. And then these clubs started sprouting up everywhere because it's cheap to form a disco. You just get a DJ, you get some records. You know, it doesn't require a band. It doesn't require as, as advanced equipment. So it kind of burst out on the scene. And then you, you know, between 75 and 80, it just really started growing, going crazy and growing. And you had Jeff talked about how there were these epicenters, but then you had it spreading out to mainstream America. Like my, my parents were in Orange County, California. They used to go to this club called Ichabods. I'll talk more about that in my personal history. (laughs) I know. And they used to go disco dancing in 75. And uh, you're going to laugh when you find out their favorite song to dance to, because it's not what you'd expect. Um, But um, but anyway, so you had then Donna Summer, you know, she had Love to Love You Baby. It was a number two hit. We'll talk more about that in her history. Um, you had the rise of the Bee Gees. You know, they had main course in 75. And then they they came out with, um, you know, a follow-up album. And then, of course, they were the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and the whole Saturday Night Fever phenomenon, which was based on an article in Rolling Stone about one of these Brooklyn discos. Um, and it became an absolute phenomenon. John Travolta became, and you know, he was already a pretty big star from welcome back Cotter, but he became a massive star. Um, and all of a sudden disco just started dominating the airwaves. Um, and most of the big hits were disco. I mean, there was other kinds of music, you know, there was obviously the California sound. We went over in a recent episode on rumors and interestingly enough, Fleetwood Mac is they don't really have disco. I don't think they ever had a song that was disco unless I'm mistaken. Um, but a lot of, you found a lot of mainstream bands at this time starting to add it to their sound. Most famously the Rolling Stones with Miss You from yeah. Some Girls, which is absolute disco. It's got all of the elements of disco, the kind of uh, funky bass line and the hi-hat going crazy, Charlie Watts. Um, you had Rod Stewart with uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy? Another uh, massive hit, both of these songs, number one songs. Um, you had the Eagles, One of These Nights, which yeah. is a little early, and it's kind of more of a funk jam, but it's it's definitely disco. I mean, I think it's hard to argue. Um, you know, and obviously they came up with a, another one, not as well-remembered or as classic called Disco Strangler. Yeah. You know, <laughs> in the long run. Or, or these um, shoes or, you know. Oh, yeah, those shoes. It's kind of got a little bit of a, a beat. You know, it's definitely the, danceable. The Tablets of Love line, which we oh, used yeah. to make fun of relentlessly right. on, the, on the, the long run, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point. Anyway. Uh, and of course, another thing we got to mention with disco culture, you know, we mentioned the sexiness, we got to mention the drugs, right? So yeah. they're one of the most, probably the most iconic and famous club that was started was a very exclusive club called Studio 54 in New York. Um, and this club actually had as part of their decor, a giant uh, kind of sea moon, uh, uh, anthropomorphized moon face that had a Coke spoon going into its nose. That was like a hanging, like a kind of a, uh, a mobile kind of thing nice. from from its light. So, and of course, there was tons of sex and drugs in that studio, and a lot of the sex was not heterosexual sex. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you had the village people uh, who were 
you know, completely out and gay and sang, you know, songs like In the Navy and YMCA, You Can Hang Out With All the Boys that were pretty explicit. They had an album called Cruising. I own this album. Uh, I did not know what that meant. <laughs> no idea that that was a very, I mean, they were, they made no bones about it. They were out and about, you know. You know, it was um, pretty funny. You mentioned the village people. I just remember as a kid, people, kids singing, you know, a YMCA and liking the village people and all that. And parents, at least, you know, maybe not all over, but at least, you know, my parents and my friend's parents were just kind of smirking about it. They knew what it was. They weren't going to yeah. sit there and tell kids, hey, don't, that, that's a gay, they, like, they, no one cared. So you had all these, like, little kids singing, you know, YMCA and in the Navy and stuff like that, thinking it was funny. And the village people were comic characters, you know, with their dressing. No, the kids didn't have any idea that it was sort of this, you know, they were yeah. gay icons and stuff like that. It's just sort of amusing looking back in time at it. Yeah, it's funny, too, because you look at the one of the village people, Glenn, he's like the leather daddy. Yeah. And it's so weird that we saw that I saw that and kind of knew I I, kinda, I mean, maybe I didn't really know when when I saw cruising, but I kind of knew there was a gay thing a very short after that. But it's weird that I would see Glenn, but then I would look at Rob Halford and not think anything about it. <laughs> Even the Rob Halford, Jesus priest, they're dressed in the same way. Yeah. I mean, he's just he could he could have stepped right into the village people fit right in right for it, sure it wouldn't even been surprising to have someone look like that because he was dressed exactly the same way so okay this 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 kind of music this movement dominates things and of course there's a huge backlash and this starts out mildly with kind of ridicule you know you had a famous single actually number one song by rick dees the uh, dj in los angeles called disco duck where he makes a uh, kind of donald duck singing voice and you know, he's singing Disco Duck, and that was kind of uh, to to kind of exploit the fad. And then you had, I remember as a kid, I had this Mad Magazine that came with this little record, Mad Disco, um, you know, that had all these songs like, you know, um, uh, about about boogies and boogers. And, you know, it was just like ridiculous. <laughs> um, uh, probably, I, I, it's too bad we didn't have a sample of that. But again, we're, we're only doing this as a kind of pre preamble to the Donna summer thing. So, you know, we might revisit, I'm sure we'll revisit disco in a future episode. We definitely have to do the Bee Gees at least. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, so, so this whole disco sucks thing started, right? People started wearing little pins. It started to become a movement. And this all culminated when a, when a, a Chicago DJ named Steve Dahl, uh, found himself, uh, frustrated because his kind of uh, AOR FM rock radio uh, station changed its format to disco. And he decided to create this event at Chicago's Comiskey Park, which was kind of a a disco sucks uh, day where people could get into the park. I think, I don't, I don't know if they could get in for free or they just asked them to bring in. So they asked them to bring in disco records to this park. And what they were going to do is put it in a big pile in the middle of the stadium and essentially blow it apart. They were going to have some explosives and just blow it up. And what's interesting about this is people brought in records by like Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder that weren't even disco really. You know, Marvin Gaye had a song, uh, Gotta Give It Up, that was a total disco song. But I mean, stuff like, you know, even Let's Get It On is kind of pre-disco. And, uh, you know, obviously what's going on was not disco. So to me, this was kind of interesting. You know, it's like they're bringing in these like Stevie Wonder and these kind of acclaimed artists, Earth, Wind & Fire, that aren't limited to disco. So what's this really about? Uh, 
you know, you could look at this as not only a reaction to disco, but a reaction to the people who made disco and who were part of the culture of disco. So in other words, I think what we're dealing with here is definitely some racism and homophobia. Yeah. You know, that, and, you know, and all that was kind of coming to a head with the election of Ronald Reagan. You know, it's kind of it, it's kind of the 70s excesses being looked at. And, you know, the disco thing went too far. There's a lot of really, really, really bad disco, like terrible disco. Um, and there's good disco, but it, it definitely became too big. And there was definitely a burnout and a reaction. Well, this this kind of stadium disco sucks movement. They blew up. They blew it up. And if there's footage on YouTube, we'll definitely link to this. Uh, I know sometimes we're bad about linking to things we say we will. But this one we got to do because this thing is incredible. When they blow up the records, it's really it was quite dangerous, actually, these explosives. And it's a huge explosion. But people got on the field and started rioting. It was this huge riot and the cops had to come in and everything. You know, the people went crazy over this. People hated disco so much. So right after this in the aftermath of this and not too long after so 1980 there were still some disco hits but by 81 you know disco as it was known was kind of dead and even the Bee Gees, who were so huge with even um their follow-up to saturday night fever which was called spirits having flown that had that's the one that has a hit tragedy number one song they followed this up with an album called living eyes and it's not even disco at all it's kind of this light pop and it completely bombed yeah right completely failed and then you had like, um, you know, even other artists like Chic, who were so massive. Like Freak was one of the biggest selling singles ever in like 78. By 1980, they couldn't get anything. You know, they couldn't they couldn't get a record deal. They couldn't release an album. They just bombed. And, you know, if you had any disco records, no one was buying it. But I find this interesting because, you know, right after this, you have Michael Jackson's Thriller. You know, right. if you listen to a lot of Thriller, you know, it's R&B, but there's disco. I mean, the you know, Billie Jean, you know, it's kind of got that pulsating beat. It's a little more 80s. It's a little more streamlined, but something like PYT, Pretty Young Thing. I mean, these are pretty danceable songs, you know, want to be starting something. Well, uh, interesting I mean, to me that, you know. You have these songs. See, this is where I think where it's disco and then disco influenced, right? Yeah. So you know, you see, so something like Billie Jean, I'd say is disco influenced. There's definitely disco elements. Um, depending on how far you stretch that, right? You mentioned the Eagles. Okay, certainly uh, Miss You and, and things like that are absolutely disco. You have the Kiss song uh, that's disco. Oh, yeah. We didn't mention that. I was yeah. made for loving you. That's one of the most egregious ones, right? Right, right. But then you have, you mentioned the hi-hat. I, I want to go back to that for a second because I think, if you if you take the beat and sort of the uh, focus on hi hat, there's a lot of things that were influenced by that way beyond even the ones that you mentioned, right? So I want to point to one that I can't believe I'm pointing out, but I think it's true. It's King Charlemagne, kid King Charlemagne, kid Charlemagne by Steely yeah. Dan. That listen to the hi hat on that. It's a disco hi hat. There's no question about that. That uh, Bernard Purdy uh, has on that. Yeah, that's that's got di definitely got disco elements. Yeah. yeah, I I don't I wouldn't say that's as egregious as something like Miss You. No, for sure. Where it's just attempting to capitalize. I just think uh, maybe that's the stuff these musicians were playing too. You know, a lot of them were probably playing in other sessions with disco. Like, what about uh, Lowdown by Boss Cats? Oh, for you know, sure. That's another one. And it's got even the, doo -doo 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 -doo, you know, that's yeah, totally yeah, yeah. Those, those kind horns. Of well, Lindsey yeah. Buckingham mentioned, you know, Jive Talking in secondhand. Uh, oh, yeah. Mint. 
right? As being influential there. So, so I think that if you're going to be just talking about disco adjacent, that it was so wide, the influence was so widespread in areas that no one would ever directly associate with disco. And yeah, I, Pink I bring Floyd that up because I also it, forgot to bring Pink up Floyd, right? Run right. Like Hell. It's like, yeah. and, and another brick in the wall part two are kind of disco adjacent. I yeah. would say they're not like, do you think I'm sexy and miss you where they're just disco exploitation right. attempting to jump on the bandwagon. It's just that that stuff was in the air because of disco. And a lot of these musicians were probably bringing that in to yeah. these other songs. And so it's there. I I think your term disco adjacent is perfect for those. Yeah. And, um, but, but that goes into, I think what you're talking about with Michael Jackson, where you say this is not a disco song, but you're like, is there an influence here? Undoubtedly and clearly. Right. Yeah, and, and I would even say some of the early New Wave stuff, uh, you know, like Duran Duran, Planet Earth. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's, and, and Girls on Film. For I mean, sure. These are super danceable songs. So the dance thing really stuck. I think music that was just for dancing, more, I mean, there was always that, right? There was the twist, you know, and all this stuff. But disco was a whole genre that was related to dancing. And I think that element didn't die. But the actual culture and the in the three-piece suits and all that did die. I do think it's had a comeback today. You know, you have Lizzo making disco songs. You have Daft Punk. They had that whole album where Nile Rodgers of Chic was involved. And even, um, you know, a, a lot of the uh, um, disco influence is overt, where it's like almost homages. Bruno yeah. Mars, too. You know, the stuff he does is like a lot of early 80s and late 70s funk. And it's 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 homage to that period. And it's kind of had a rebirth. And even in in the early nineties, we saw that, right. Yeah. Uh, when we were going to college that the disco stuff was coming back, you know, we, there would be parties and stuff where people would dance to this stuff and play this, play these records as a nostalgic thing. Yep. Okay. So let's talk about personal history. So why don't, why don't you uh, go first? Yeah, yeah I'll go first. So story about Ichabod's okay. here. Okay, Ichabod. So uh, you're going to love this. This is another disco adjacent thing, but maybe er really early, more of a funk thing. So my parents were of the age, you know, my parents weren't as old as other people's parents and they were hipper. We've talked about that before, right? Jeff's yep. parents listening to Ice Castles or whatever. My and parents were Johnny Mathis. My parents were listening to, you know, my dad was into Dark Side of the Moon and, you know, Pink right. Floyd and all this. Um, but they... During the mid seventies, my mom's always been really into dancing. I mean, she'll get up and dance just randomly. You know, if music's playing, she'll get up and dance and she's kind of crazy that way, but she's always been really into dancing. My parents always been really into dance music. They had a lot of, you know, I mentioned sign the family stone, earth, wind and fire. I grew up with this stuff around the house because they were just really into it, but they used to go out dancing to this club in Orange County called Ichabod's. And my dad would get the, my dad. There's pictures of, pictures of my dad. They're actually from later when they got divorced. I'll go into that in a little bit later, but he had like the whole three piece suit, you nice. know, he had the whole look, he had like big, big porn stash and, you know, big sideburns, <laughs> the whole bit. Dude. He looked amazing. Um, and my mom totally had the disco fashions, you know, the kind of off the shoulder dress. She had a little bit of that Dorothy Hamill hair and all that. And they'd go dancing. But one of the, the favorite sing to, song to dance to the big one, they danced to trampled underfoot by Led Zeppelin. Really? Yeah, that was played. This was like early, early disco. And they would play that because it's very funky. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's super funky. And my dad loved that was his favorite album, Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin. It's also mine. But um, but uh he was really into that album. That's how I first heard about that album, was he was into it. And they loved that song. 
too. Hmm. So um, it is interesting. Yeah, I thought it was funny. But when my parents got divorced, my dad went full on Disco Donnie. And there was a picture of him, me and my sister used to, because uh, my dad's name's Don. So I, we called him, me and my sister found this old photo of him and he's kind of leaning, leaning on the side. And it's totally like the singles pick. And he's got the three piece suit, the little medallion, the whole bit. Nice. And we were dead over that. And my dad's like, Hey, I paid an arm and a leg for that suit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but he would, he would totally, when he, when him and my mom got divorced, he was on the single scene for a bit and he was going to the dances and all that. And he met my stepmom through my aunt and, you know, she totally looked disco-y too, just because it was the seventies. But you know, at any rate, that's kind of the story of them. As far as Donna Summer, let's bring it back to Donna Summer. Uh, you know, I remember the hits. Uh, I remember I feel love a lot. I remember when I heard that as a kid, I definitely noticed it was kind of something different. Um, I wasn't exposed to things like craft work or, you know, early, synth, you know, um, Klaus Schulze and the stuff I really like now, the early synth kind of music. So it was very, weird to hear that on the radio kind of yeah. futuristic and we'll talk more about that in my email and my mom had one of her early albums called four seasons of love she has these weird concept albums she do they're not very good you know they're very uh kind of junk product thrown out i mean really i i will repeat again and again that for me donna summer is about the hits uh some of the album tracks are interesting some of the production is issued, but this four seasons of love it's like these eight minute songs about each season and uh, it's just not very entertaining. I listened to it because I was kind of like, oh, cool, a concept album. You know, I love concept albums like Quadrophenia and The Wall. And it's not that good, obviously. Uh, and then I remember this movie, which I think we will do at some point um, when I was a kid that I always wanted to see that had, uh, you know, Jodie Foster. And it actually had Sherry Curry from The Runaways in it, too. It's about these four teenage girls called foxes yeah i don't know if you remember this movie it's got it's Vaguely. got scott bayo in it too and it was produced by casablanca so the actual band that's featured in it more than donna summer even though donna summer is featured in it in a way that's much more memorable is the band angel which we might get to them maybe in our 350th episode or something they're very also ran but i'm a fan of this band they were the other band besides kiss that was on casablanca that they were trying to boost that never made it um, but they are featured, they play live in this film. But the most important song, of course, in the film is on the radio, which is one of my all-time favorites. We're going to be talking about that in, in this. Um, great pop song. You know, it's disco, but it's kind of a great hook and great melody as well. So I remember that. And then I didn't really think about Donna Summer much. You know, I remember the hits. I remember She Works Hard for the Money, seeing that on MTV. Um, but late. Later, my friend, I have this friend, metal theologian, Aaron, I talk about him a lot on the show because he introduced me to a lot of music. He was introduced me to all this crazy metal, you know, early new wave of British heavy metal stuff that I haven't heard. And, you know, a lot of German kind of uh, kraut rock stuff and stuff. I, he, he introduced me to a lot of interesting music, but I noticed he had this Donna Summer greatest hits and he's all, oh, yeah, that's great. And I'm like, what? Really? So I went and bought it like at the thrift shop. I saw it and he was right. It's great. And I just totally got into Donna Summer. I was just like uh, recently, this was probably like 15 years ago. I just started really getting into it. And then later I got into this band Sparks and they actually made an album with Giorgio Moroder called Number One Song in Heaven. That's all like this disco-y stuff. And it's my favorite album by them. You know, a lot of people like their earlier stuff and their kind of glam stuff. I also like that. I like the band as a whole. But 
But um, my favorite album by them is the one they did with Giorgio. And so I actually got his albums too. And so that I feel love kind of sound is all over his solo work and all over Sparks, that Sparks album. So I really like that. Um, and and, and Giorgio, you know, we might talk about this later, but you might, if you remember his name, it's from our Berlin Missing Persons episode where he produced Berlin, uh, No More Words and, and uh, some of those songs as well, right? Right. And we'll talk about Berlin because that, you know, we got to talk about sex and how much it sounds like I feel love. Yeah. Um, And then of course we're going to touch on Terry Nunn because there's another crossover with her and Donna Summer we'll get to in the history. Um, But, but yeah, basically I just love all the hits. I love uh, one song I want to point out specifically that was a recent one that I don't remember listening to as much as a kid was dim all the lights, which I'm also going to talk about, um, which is, you know, was a number two song for her was a big hit, but that's basically my history with her. Yeah. Mine is, is much more abbreviated. I mean, I had heard the hits like everybody else at the time. You couldn't listen to the radio or be around or TV without seeing and hearing those, you know, uh, you know, bad girls and hot stuff. And on the radio, I feel loved. I heard all those. I wasn't a fan. I mean, nobody in my orbit was really a big disco person other than, you know, Saturday night fever was more of a universal a cultural phenomenon than anything else. So I had more exposure to, to that. Although, uh, I'll, you know, in the future, when we talk about that movie or the Bee Gees, I'll have more stories about how I wasn't allowed to see that movie until the PG cut came out. I don't yeah, know if same that. here. Same here. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, first cut I saw was the PG cut. And wait, later when I saw the R cut, I was like, oh, okay, now I understand why yeah, I couldn't yeah, see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of stuff. Anyway, um, yeah, so it wasn't something I really listened to. Um, I wasn't into disco. Um, nobody I knew, you know, my parents certainly weren't cool enough to be going to any clubs or um, hearing any stories. There. I don't think I knew anybody who did. I think the closest any of my parents or my parents' friends came to any of that is having sideburns. So there's lots of pictures of that uh, in, the, in the in the 70s. But other than that, not really. And I've never really been a huge disco fan. I mean, there's certainly songs that I like, including these Donna Summer ones, as we'll, as we'll get into, um, and the BG stuff. But it's not really, I, don't, I'm, I couldn't say I'm a really big fan of dance music, and I certainly don't have a lot of positive things to say about EDM stuff, as you'll, you'll learn uh, soon. So, um, yeah, that's basically it. This isn't really my area of expertise or interest, but um, it's interesting from a cultural perspective to me, for sure. So let's talk about the zeitgeist and how all this came about in a little more detail. Right, right. So we did talk, I think our disco uh, history lesson and our discussion of the nature of disco was the majority of this, right? And Donna, it's weird because Donna Summer's rise up and her influences weren't really this because she kind of helped create it. She was something kind of new, but her influences and the zeitgeist she's has a, there are other aspects to the zeitgeist that kind of resulted in Donna Summer. And obviously, uh, you know, her earliest influence was gospel music because she sang as a young girl in church. And one of her idols was the great singer Mahalia Jackson. Um, her other influences were kind of the the ones you would expect for some for a for a young girl growing up in the in the 50s and 60s, mainly the Supremes and Diana Ross. Yeah. Who also Diana Ross is another artist who did quite some 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 had some really big disco hits, although she's like the Bee Gees. She is so much broader than that because of the Supremes and her great 
Motown songs with them. And then, of course, Aretha Franklin, another artist who dabbled in disco, but who was just way beyond that, you know, touching gospel and R&B and soul, uh, you know, and obviously one of the greatest singers who ever lived. And then I also want to call out Barbara Streisand, because I just think Barbara Streisand is another one of these powerhouse singers. I'm going to really go into how I think Donna Summer is a is an amazing vocalist. Not only was her music innovative, but her vocals were she's quite a quite a good singer. And I don't think people really talk about that enough. Uh, you know, when they talk about great singers, they definitely talk about Barbara Streisand, one of the all-time greats, uh, you know, and, and Aretha Franklin. And, you know, we mentioned Pat Benatar, another all-time great, and Ann Wilson, you know, different genres. But for the more R&B genre and the more pop genre, these other singers often get more attention. But I think Donna Summer is up there in, in her abilities. Now, the other thing is obviously the whole disco thing was Jeff mentioned during the history that this kind of happened in select areas and New York was one of them also in Europe. We started to see this in Germany and we had, you know, the whole Euro disco thing, which I think really started with Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder, but kind of sprouted up and there were other artists, like there was Italian disco. I have a couple albums by this guy, Cerrone. The album covers <laughs> are amazing. So I'll probably link to, we're never going to do Cerrone. He's not that significant, but it's like the synth, Jeff, you wouldn't like it. It's yeah. like the little synth stuff. It's really, <laughs> really, really, uh, really ridiculous music, but I, I have a soft spot for it. There was other albums by this band called Space was another one. They were kind of a synthesizer disco band. And then the Euro stuff's interesting. It's kind of weird. Um, you know, and I, we've mentioned Boney M on our AM radio episode. They were another group that dabbled in disco. Um, so there was a lot of this weird Euro disco that was out there. And she was part of that movement. And then, of course, there's the whole Casablanca records uh, part of the zeitgeist. Now, this record label has its own kind of zeitgeist, which is very much around marketing and exploitation. You know, we talked about Neil Bogart, the founder of Casablanca, quite a bit in our Kiss episode. And that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Episode you know, one, by the way. So the new first listeners, episode, go back right. and go listen to that. Yep, that's right. That, that episode, uh, we talk about Kiss Alive and we talk a lot about you know, Casablanca and how uh, Neil Bogart was much more into image and marketing than a lot of record companies, you know, and obviously Angel, the other also ran band, they had an image too. They were all dressed in white. They had stage gimmickry that influenced Spinal Tap, the movie, you know, there was all this kind of presentation layer stuff. And Donna Summer was no, well, even though Donna Summer musically, you know, was interesting, she also had this image this kind of sexual sex goddess image that he wanted to perpetuate that she wasn't always interested in. And so his whole thing of, you know, kind of the seventies and image being so important to the music for Casablanca is another part of the zeitgeist. So that's kind of the whole zeitgeist. I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. No, um, I, I think that covered it well. So, you know, let's get into um, Ms. Summer and, and, and or Gaines as it is in reality. Right, right. So, Right. So her her real name is LaDonna Adrian Gaines, and she was born in 1948, uh, December 31st, 1948 in Boston. It's funny. You listen to interviews there. You can totally hear the accent. Yeah, um, it's kind of funny. Her parents were lower middle class. Actually, her background wasn't that dissimilar to one Pat Andrzejewski, uh, <laughs> a.k.a. Pat uh a.k.a. Pat Benatar, a.k.a. Pat Benatar Geraldo, um, who we covered before, right? She lived with aunts and uncles and grandparents in the same house, and they were kind of lower middle class. Uh, she was prone to depression as a kid, you know, and she was very self-conscious about her looks. She also had a 
little bit of bedwetting was kind of a rough childhood in some ways. Um, she was able to get over that by seeing a psychiatrist. And that would kind of be something she would repeat later. Um, she sang at church and glee club at club in high school. And interestingly enough, she would do these breath exercises and hold her breath for longer and longer periods of time to, you know, build up her diaphragm strength. And you'll see that that paid off. I'll, yeah. I'll have an example of that. Um, so it, so she grew up in this kind of, you know, semi-religious family and religion will play a role, um, for her later as I, as I'll mention, as we transition out of disco in the eighties, but her first exposure to professional sort of amateurish semi-professional mu musicianship was with this band called Crow. Now I tried to find this. I would love to have heard this because they were kind of a psychedelic band. So it'd be kind of interesting to hear her play this. So she was like 17 and she tried out for this band just kind of randomly. She sang a version of Aretha Franklin's respect, uh, you know, the Otis Redding song. And um, she had like, her hair was cut like the model Twiggy. So really short. So you can't imagine it wasn't uh, what you'd, it wasn't the long flowing hair she'd have in the seventies. More on that later. And the leader of the band was this uh, rich white kid named Hobie Cook, who kind of wined her and dined her and even asked her to marry him at one time. Uh, during this time, she also kind of saw some, uh, you know, she was kind of Boston kind of had this psychedelic area and she went to clubs. She saw Janis Joplin. That was a big influence on her. Um, but what under the other thing that happened at this time that was kind of interesting is she witnessed this robbery take place and she actually became a witness in the trial for these teenagers that were, uh, they basically robbed this woman and she ended up dying from the, you know, they mugged her and she was beaten and she ended up dying. And so Donna Summer testified against one of these uh, uh, kids and all of them were arrested. And later she would say that, um, well, I'll get into that in a bit, but anyway, uh, she was working with Crow at this time. They had a demo for RCA, but the label just wanted her. They didn't want the band. Um, so she, uh, she didn't want to do that. She was kind of still working with the band when this guy named Bertrand Castelli, uh, was in, was in town and was, meeting with a friend of hers and overheard Donna singing with Crow and wanted her to basically come to Germany to be in a new musical, which was the German version of Hair. Hmm. The musical Hair, uh, it was a, a hippie musical that came out at the time, was a massive success, was off-Broadway and it became a Broadway hit, had such songs as uh, Good Morning Sunshine, you know, let the sunshine in an Aquarius was the most famous. Right. And it was a number one song for the fifth dimension uh, who covered it. But but this was a massive, massive show at the time. And so she got, um, you know, she got this gig and it was just in time because I guess she said there was some guys trying to kidnap her in New York. I don't know about this story. She's like, oh, it was the friends of the guys who were arrested. Yeah. So this kind of gave her the, she said, this is what caused her to really want to take the chance to go to Germany. Her parents were against it, but she went to Germany and she was in hair. So we're going to listen to a small clip of this show because it's so funny. It's in German. This is a uh, Wasserman, AKA Aquarius.
Der Wassermann. Yeah, so I think it probably means waterman. Yeah, like that's what Yes, I, I was trying to figure out what the fuck Wasserman. It just sounds like some guy's name. But uh, but yeah, you can hear how good a singer she was hitting those high notes and all that. Um, she became fluent in German and she actually became a model as well. She became she was hugely successful and very happy in Germany. Yeah. Um, you know, during the doing this show. Um, the show was a massive success and ran for many years. Um, she also was in versions of Showboat, Porgy and Bess, and another uh, show called The Meat that Nobody Knows. Uh, this She moved for, to Vienna for a time, and she met this other actor named Helmut Sommer. He was another rich kid. Um, and it's Sommer, S-O-M-M-E-R. Um, and she basically became, um, became a housewife for a time period. And uh, she had a daughter named Mimi in February of 73 during this time. The funny thing is uh, she has this little story where she mentions that Hummels brought home the record soundtrack to Shaft, Isaac Hayes. And she said, listening to Isaac Hayes Shaft with the sound of Shaft pounding in my ears, we took a love ride. This this is, by the way, a lot of this information is from her book called Ordinary Girl that was written in 2003. So all these little details, right? Mm. Um, so anyway, she got a gig with another band called, uh, the family tree. And this is a band. You can find this on YouTube. We may link to it. It's really terrible. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not memorable at all, but the video has like these 12 different singers. It's really weird. There's like a video of this. So she was part of that. Uh, She got with this mystery man named Gunther that led to her divorce. This guy, just to say, I'm not going to talk much more about him. He's all over her book, but basically she stays with him for years and he ends up being abusive. And, you know, when she moved to the States, he eventually got deported. Uh, But she kind of got hooked up with this abuser and it wasn't great. Now, uh, during this time, she was back in Munich kind of after her divorce, um, and she met Giorgio Moroder, who was a producer in Munich. He was mainly known for creating this music called Schlager, which is kind of the German bubblegum music. And if you want to get a sense of this, and we could maybe link to it, just look up Music Laden 1970s. This was the British kind of, uh, or the German version of like Top of the Pops. Man, some of this stuff is just bizarro. You know, really crazy shit. Um, And they he he his partner was this guy named Peter Belote and Belote and Maroder ended up writing her a song called The Hostage. We're going to play it in a minute. But the funny thing about the song is it was written in 72 in Munich. So what happened in Munich in 72? Something not good. Yeah. Which is the Israeli uh, Olympic team was murdered. Right. They were, they were, yeah, they were taken hostage, right? And all, yeah. I think a lot of them were killed in this airport standoff. I don't remember. I need to brush up on the documentary again. Uh, that's the documentary where they play like immigrant song in the background while this is happening, which is pretty funny. But, um, but anyway, so the song was kind of tabled for a bit because obviously when he tried to get it out there, people were like uh, not really in the appetite to hear about hostages. But this song became a pretty major hit in the Netherlands. And let's play a little bit because it's fucking so weird. It's so weird. Hello. Lady, we've just kidnapped your husband. Have $800,000 ready by tomorrow night. And lady, no police. Or you never see your husband alive again. Hello. 
Yeah, yeah. weird, right? Yeah. There's uh, actually, th- this is something we absolutely have to link to the video for this because this is a performance on a Dutch TV show where there's this silhouette doing the guy, the intro, the vocal intro where the guy calls her and yeah. says, we have your husband hostage. It's like the silhouette of this guy. And then she performs on stage and then they cut back to him later and he talks more. And uh, it's just a really weird, weird song. Um, it was number two in in the Netherlands. It was also hit in Belgium. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. And, it, and it, to me, it sounds part of it sounds like uh, You're So Vain. Carly yeah, the verse, yeah. the verse. I yeah. it was weird. You wrote that down, and I'm like, "What's he talking about?" But then when I listen to it this time, I'm like, "Oh yeah, I kind of get that. They might have yeah. uh, been influenced by that. That was first. Yeah. So th- this was '74. So the um, so she came out with an album called Lady of the Night, and when they printed the album, they actually printed her name. This is so the story goes. They printed her name S U M M E R. It was supposed to be S O M M E R. Yeah. So she be she just went with it, right? After that, um. Donna Summer had this idea for a song, just kind of a lyric, Love to Love You Baby. She said it would be a cool song. She kind of sang a little bit of it. Jojo Moroder turned it into a disco song, kind of one of the first ones. And originally the song was just a regular length, you know, like three, four minutes long. And he took this song to this festival called Midem, which was a European festival. It was kind of the equivalent of Khan, the Khan Film Festival, but for music. And at Midem, he met Neil Bogart. Right. So Neil Bogart signed um, uh, Donna Summer based on this song. He loved the song. And of course, like I said, we mentioned he was already working on getting Kiss together at this time. Kiss was the first artist he had signed. Donna Summer was the next major one. There were others, but Donna Summer was the next major artist he'd signed. And um, I'll have more to say about the kind of specifics, the different versions of the songs in my eval, because I'm definitely going to mention this one. But uh, they recorded an album uh, and the album was number two uh, or the album was uh, number 11. And um, the song was number two in the U.S. It was a massive hit. It was actually a worldwide hit. And uh, for the album, there was a 17 minute version. Uh, that they that they created, which was, again, as we mentioned with disco, the whole idea of these long kind of hypnotic, repetitive songs. This was kind of the quintessential one of those. It's very repetitive. There's little changes and variations throughout the 17 minutes. Um, and uh, but that's I'll mention more of that in the eval, like to talk about why they did that and stuff. But essentially, you know, it was her big hit. Uh, what's interesting around this time, there was a drag performer. Uh, who who started doing lip syncs to this song or started using this song in, in her act. And this led to the rumor that Donna Summer was a transvestite. Mm. Uh, so that was kind of creepy to her. You know, obviously she was this conservative Christian girl. And then, you know, of course they have her in this iconic dress on the cover. And, and she started kind of wearing these long slinky kind of dresses that kind of became a signature of disco fashion. And she had this very sexual image Um you know, she often wore wigs, uh, different wigs to have different hairstyles. And uh, she had this crazy stage show where we, she, she would kind of, there were, she would come out of an egg <laughs> on stage. So kind of like Spinal Tap, again, like Angel did similar things. They would yeah. have these cocoons and that that cocoon breaking, you know, the, remember how in, in Spinal Tap, they're in the, the kind of cocoons and, and uh, Derek's uh, whatever, um, Harry Shearer's doesn't open, right? And yeah. he's trying to bust it open. That's actually based on a real thing that happened with Angel. 
Uh, so they had the cocoons and one of them wouldn't open. So that's, that's like funny. based on more of the brilliance of that movie, which we'll get to at some point. Um, but she was really stressed during this time. She, for one thing, she didn't want to move back to the US, but Neil Bogart insisted on it. She was doing constant appearances and, and tours and things. Um, and she ended up having a bout of myocarditis um, during this time, heart problems. Um and it was very stressful time for her. Uh, she also didn't really like the image, the sexual image. She was she would, in interviews. She would kind of talk about the song, and I will get to that in my email. But um, the funny thing is, Time Magazine called her not the queen of disco, but the queen of sex rock. Mm. I mean, that sounds like a sixty-year-old going, "Hey, all these kids listening to today is called you know the new the latest trend in music is sex rock." You know, it's like such the weird. Um, kind of journalistic uh, reaction. Okay, so 76, you know, that was 75 and 76. She came out with a couple albums, A Love Trilogy and Four Seasons of Love. These don't really have much notable about them. They're both went gold. They didn't chart very high. Uh, the Love to Love You Baby album was platinum. Uh, so that was more successful. I mean, she would always, there was this dance chart, which they would name later rename the disco chart for a short period of time. Almost everything she ever released was number one on this chart. But as far as Billboard charts, none of this stuff charted very high. The most notable thing was the Barry Manilow cover, Could It Be Magic? She does a really good version of that. Um, and that was, you know, again, not a big hit for her. Uh, so 76, um, again, she's she started taking depression, uh, this med medication called Malpar, which is an MAO inhibitor for her depression at this time. And she said it kind of made her spazzy, but she was able to kind of get through things at least. Again, a very rigorous schedule. So 76 was a decent year for her, but 77 things really started to happen. Uh, she was uh, basically won an American Music Award for the first time for Best Female R&B Soul Artist. She released an, uh, another album, I Remember Yesterday, and this album is noteworthy, also gold, but noteworthy for having I Feel Love on it, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the number six hit, a massive worldwide hit, very big, number one hit in the UK, you know, a worldwide a sensation. I'll have more to say about that in my eval. She also did the theme from the movie The Deep, which was one of the first movies that Casablanca Filmworks produced. This was also the first movie I ever saw with my stepmother in a double feature with the Spy Who Loved Me. Great double feature. <laughs> you get you get Carolyn Monroe and you also get Jacqueline Bissett. So what else? What else could a like seven or eight year old kid want? Nice. Um, and then she released another album, Once Upon a Time, which was gold. But the thing about this album is it was a concept album, like her, similar to the Four Seasons of Love, which had been released the previous year. Uh, it's called it's called Once Upon a Time. It's basically a Cinderella story, and it's like. Not really noteworthy, except it has the song I Love You, which was a, a, a decent hit for her. Again, the album was gold. Okay, 78 and 79 are really her peak. Um, in 1978, she starred, had a bit part, which you heard at the beginning, uh, some of her great acting in a movie called Thank God It's Friday. Yeah. Um, this, she played a character named Nina Cole, who was an aspiring singer. Um, and... She also, and her song in the movie, the song she sings that basically kind of makes her an instant star is Last Dance. And this was written by um, a different songwriter named, songwriter named Paul Jabara. I will have more to say about this in my eval because this is a major hit for her number three song. Um, and 
the scene in which she sings that song, she kind of busts, you know, runs past the DJ who's telling her to shut up. She's kind of awkwardly singing and then it bursts into the regular song. Everybody goes crazy. One of the audience members who goes crazy is Terry Nunn of Berlin yeah. <laughs> during that scene. So you see her in that in that scene. Um, she won a Grammy for Best R&B Vocalist this year. Um, she also had a number one live album come out. It was her first of three in a row double number one albums. Um, I would say no one's ever done that, but I think Chicago, they had so many double albums. I'm sure they did that, <laughs> uh, but it, I'm not positive, but obviously she was the first female ever to do this and maybe the only one. Uh, so Live and More came out. It was number one in the US. It's two times platinum. It features two major hits for her. One was her version of MacArthur Park, which was a Jimmy Webb song. Um, and it was nominated for a Grammy for Best Female Pop Vocal. It was a number one song. I will have more to talk about that in my eval. The other one was a song called Heaven Knows, which she recorded with a New York vocal group. They're kind of a yachty New York band called Brooklyn Dreams. They have a few albums of their own. But their biggest success was no doubt this song. Uh, she co-sings it with uh, this one member of the band, Joe Bean Esposito. And she also met Bruce Sodano, who she fell in love with and would marry. Um, and that was a big major thing, right? So, so this 78 was a really big year for her. She started out 79 by winning a bunch of American music awards, including disco album, single and female artist, which is interesting because, you know, disco became such a phenomenon. They actually had separate awards for it at this time, which would immediately go away in 1980 yeah. <laughs> or 1981. Yeah. Well, that goes to show you, um, now, this album, this year, she produced uh, probably her most important work or as an album, which was Bad Girls. Uh, this was another double album. And it's interesting because all of the songs, as I mentioned, seeg into each other. It's a really interesting record. There's a lot going on here. The album was produced by Maroder and Belote, like all of her previous works. But they brought in another uh, German musician and, and producer to arrange it named Harold Faltermeyer, who Jeff is a huge fan of, I guess. Um, we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. But Harold, Harold Faltermeyer is probably more associated with the 80s. But this was like uh one probably one of the major things he ever created um the album was huge it it was double platinum again um it went to number 1 twice so it had a period of a few weeks at number 1 was knocked off the top of the charts i don't remember by what came back and went to number 1 again uh she had a bunch of singles from this album the first was hot stuff and she won best rock vocalist for this which is interesting because this song is actually kind of rocking as we'll, as we'll talk about, um, uh, you know, and, and then she uh, followed that up with the title track, bad girls. And she won the American music award for best pop single for that. Another number one song. Um, and then at this point, she became the first female artist ever to have two songs in the top three at the same time. So this had never been done by a female artist. Uh, she followed that up with another song called Dim All the Lights, which was number two. And this led to some friction. So she was already having issues with Casablanca and their rigorous schedule. And, you know, Neil Bogart's insistent on her sexual imagery image uh, was kind of conflicting with her religious convictions. But the big break with Casablanca came because of the, what happened next. So she released Dim All the Lights. This was a song that was completely written only by her. And she really wanted it to go to number one. And it looked like it was going to. But then she had also recorded a duet with Barbara Streisand called Tears, uh, No More Tears, in parentheses, Enough is Enough. Um, and 
that Neil Bogart heard that and he immediately released it. She wanted him to hold off because she was worried it would knock demo, keep demo the lights from going number one and thus hurting her chances of getting more royalties, more uh, credit for writing the song and having her own number one hit right. because all the other songs were co-written by Marauder and Belote and others. Um, and so this was her kind of one, her one song she had written herself completely. Um, but of course, Tears, No More Tears was an automatic number one, huge hit. Um, and so there you go. The album was also critically acclaimed. It was nominated for album of the year uh, in the Grammys, didn't win. Um, and then you had a follow-up to that, another double album. This was the greatest hits compilation called On the Radio. This is the one I really like, the only one I really have. Um, I'll probably pick up Bad Girls if I see it for a reasonable price at some point, but I don't think our other albums are worth it. I've listened to them on Spotify, but this has pretty much almost everything you'd want to hear. Um, it had, um, was the first album to feature No More Tears, Enough is Enough for Donna Summer. It also had on the radio from the Fox's soundtrack on here and on the radio was a number five hit. Um, and again, this was her third consecutive double album to go number one. Okay, so that is her golden era. That is her peak. Now, what happened in the 1980s? Well, in 1980, she married Bruce Adano. She very shortly after that had her daughter, Brooklyn. Um, and then she had a TV special on ABC. I've never seen this. I'm sure there's YouTube footage we could possibly link. She decided to break with Casablanca because of the reasons I mentioned. And she signed with David Geffen to his new label, Geffen Records. Um, she was more overtly into Christianity at this point and was kind of trying to change her image. Yeah. Um, and it kind of came just in time because she doesn't really talk about disco affecting her, her career. It obviously did to a certain extent, but really she did pretty well for the first few years of the 80s. The Wanderer was a pretty huge album. It went gold, number 13, and the title track, which is I'm not going to play, is a really weird song. It's very kind of new wave. Uh, it's kind of like new wave pop, very Faltermeyer. Uh, his influence is really heavily felt on this album, even though it was produced by all three of them. And this song went to number three. So she was still very successful at this time. She tried to follow this up with a, a record that was titled I'm a Rainbow, but David Geffen hated the record. And so it was shelved. Uh, she decided to the next year, she decided to work with Quincy Jones. You know, he had just come off of working with Michael Jackson on Thriller and he produced a self-titled album called Donna Summer. And this had a really big hit called um, uh, Love is in Control in parentheses finger on the trigger, which is very much like what thriller sounds like you know it very much sounds like what quincy jones was doing at the time uh so this was a decent hit the album didn't sell real well not as well as the wanderer now she owed polygram which had bought casablanca had folded neil bogart had just died during this time and when she mentions how sad she was but casablanca had gone under and they were kind of taken over i mean casablanca was still around but they were like a subsidiary of polygram and so she technically owed polygram another record so she ended up making She Works Hard for the Money, the album. Mm, yeah. It was produced by Michael Omardian. And ironically, it wasn't on Geffen. It would be our biggest album of the 80s. It was gold and it made number nine. And the title was a really big hit, especially on MTV, was number three. Jeff will be talking more about this. But she was also the first African-American to be played on MTV in regular rotation. So that was definitely a groundbreaking uh, thing for her. Uh, the song was... 
inspired by this female restroom attendant she had seen at this restaurant called Chasen's, which is a fancy restaurant. Um, and she had she had noticed this woman and someone said to her, she works hard for the money. So she immediately got inspiration to write the song. Uh, around this time, her daughter Amanda was born. She followed up that record uh, with Cats Without Claws, another record for Geffen, uh, produced by Michael Amardian. This record did not uh, do very well. It only reached number 40. None of the singles charted. Also around this time, she was quoted, and I'm not sure where this came from. I tried to find more information about this, but there were rumors that she had negative things to say about homosexual people because of AIDS. And this was a huge controversy in the gay community, obviously, because they were pro- she was probably an icon to them. Yeah. And just and because they were this- responsible for her success largely early on, too. Exactly. They yeah. were the first first to play Love to Love You. They were the ones who spread it. Right. Yeah. That It became viral because of the clubs. Yeah. And that's how it got uh, popular in the United States. So, um, you know, that, but she later. Uh, basically talked to Advocate Magazine in the late 80s and kind of dispelled these rumors and said that, you know, a lot of the people she worked with were gay and she did not, she said people's personal beliefs were their own. I mean, she was really Christian at this time, so I wouldn't be surprised if she said something. I mean, she did on her uh, Wanderer album. The last song is called I Believe in Jesus. Mm. So she was very overtly Christian again. So she kind of went back to her Christian roots. Um she created another album called All Systems Go, uh, which was completely produced by Walt uh, Faltermeyer and uh, Harold Faltermeyer. And that album only went to 122. It's very 80s, very dated. No really memorable tracks on there. She was dropped by Geffen. And ironically, after being dropped by Geffen, she was picked up by Warner Brothers, released the album Another Place in Time, which was produced by a producer team. I forget their names. I should have got this that was working with like Rick Astley and Kylie Minogue. So it's very of that sound. But she had a really major hit called This Time I Know It's For Real. It was like a worldwide hit. It was number uh, uh, top 10, number seven hit in the U.S. Um, now, after that, it doesn't get that interesting. She's kind of, you know, she had a few more albums that didn't do very well. Um, she had this pretty big concert in the 90s on VH1 and kind of, again, because of the 90s, she was kind of reassessed and people kind of looked at her more favorably. Um, she had another album called Crans, which is, which is total EDM, uh, released in 2008. You know, it got some critical notice, but it didn't really sell real well. And unfortunately, she died way too young. She died on um, May 17th, 2012 at age 63 from lung cancer. What's interesting, her sister also died from lung cancer. Uh, Donna Summer had smoked when she was younger, but she thought it was from fumes from ground zero. I don't know, because she was a rent. She had an apartment there and she was there on 9-11, like blocks away from ground zero. I don't know about that, but obviously she had a genetic propensity propensity to get it if her sister died of it as well. Um, She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013, uh, posthumously. And then, you know, her music has, uh, you know, been regularly kind of covered and played again. There's been all these dance EDM versions of her songs that have come and gone. Uh, the, you know, the I'm a Rainbow record was re-released that, that had never been released and people look at it kind of favorably. But again, that's kind of where we'll leave it, I think, with the history. So why don't we uh, move on to the evals? Yeah. So, you know, thinking about Donna Summer to me is really, as we are talking about, like, it's really, you have to think of disco. It's hard to separate them. And and so I'll kind of weave in and out 
between the two and conflating it a little bit, um, I think fairly and maybe unfairly in some ways. Mostly when I we were, I was doing research on this, I was stunned by the number of albums she sold. Yeah, um, you know, it, in a very short amount of time. I mean, especially during her heydays, and may, obviously into the '80s when she worked hard for the money was a big hit as well. But she sold like over a hundred million albums, and it puts her up into very elite company as far as the number of artists over time that have sold that much. I was absolutely stunned by that. I would not have guessed that. Um, I'm sure she and a lot of the people behind her uh, success made a lot of money. There's no question about that. And and hopefully um, she was smart with the money that she made, on her, her going bankrupt or anything. So maybe that all was all good. Um, you talked a lot about the disco stuff. I want to talk a little bit more about the, the post-disco stuff. And you mentioned Harold Faltemeyer and me being a big fan. Maybe you were joking. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm a big fan, but the influence of him on her and on the eighties was something that I think I want to also talk about. Right. So the name Harold Faltemeyer, um, maybe rings a bell to you, but if you're not into the cultural milieu, as they say, as we are as much, I'm going to remind you of some of his works, not related to Donna Summer first. So, uh, here is one, uh, you may recognize, see if you can guess the movie slip. You recognize well, that's that certainly movie? not the seventies. No. Uh, I I think from the show notes I know what it is, but I do not remember this. Okay, so this is from um, Fletch, uh, which is one of my favorite movies. We'll get into at some point, but yeah, oh yeah, is, Fletch. Yeah, the, that is like hardcore, like keyboard much. I mean, really craziness. Here, here's another one um, that has some. You know, we talked about Giorgio Moroder. We talked about Terry Nunn. You can't get into. Um, all that without talking about this movie. You recognize that, did you? Yeah. Yeah. So that's from Top Gun and the guitar player on that. Do you know who the guitar player is? Uh, is it uh, Joe Satriani? No, good good guess. It's Steve Stevens. Uh, from, oh, Steve Stevens. Because yeah. it kind of it has that yeah. Reminds me of surfing with the alien. Yeah, yeah, yeah I could see that. Alien a little bit. Of course, those guys are all like these shred. You know, that's all of that sound. Yeah, the '80s sound. But it's it's so strange to me that you're. Yeah, I guess when you talk about Donna Summer, you kind of have to talk about the people around her as well, which is kind of the opposite of what you were doing with Neil Geraldo, right? You were kind of emphasizing Pat more and saying, "Well, his role may not have been as what he said." But I think with these guys, you cannot emphasize enough that they are. I mean, without Giorgio Moroder and maybe even Harold Faltemeyer, depending on what his contribution was, we'll see. Um, you can't really talk about her without them. Yeah. Because I would argue that once she left, at least, uh, I think some of her stuff with Harold Faltemeyer in the 80s is very dubious. But once she left Moroder and that whole crew, uh, although Harold Faltemeyer deserves credit because Bad Girls is, is her, her critical peak, no doubt, and her success peak. Um, so those guys are integral to her. She wouldn't yeah. be what she was without them. It's yeah. different than Pat Benatar where you were arguing Pat would have been big somehow. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't think Donna Summer would have been, I don't think she would have been known at all. 
uh, without those guys. So that's yeah. another, that's probably a, a, something we should evaluate when we're, when we're doing this. So this is kind of interesting. Okay. So Top Gun, Fletch. Uh, so, but, but also for Top Gun, he wrote The Heat Is On, the Glenn Fry hit. That was, um, he co-wrote that or wrote that and produced that. Right. Um, here's something from Top Gun. You, you know, we can't talk, you're talking about gay clubs, the gay culture around propping up disco. Um, you can't talk about gay without talking about uh, this, by the way. Dude, I feel this is going to be another corner flash thing where you bring playing with the boys up, you know, <laughs> Instagram as well. Yeah. On Instagram, well, right? Because it, it's the, it's the gayest scene of a movie ever. Maybe yeah. outside of gay porn is, is right. that scene from Top Gun. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he wrote, of course, another a theme from a major, huge, huge movie of the 80s. You may know this. Okay, so you, you you get the you get the point now. How does this come back to Donna? Well, you mentioned hot stuff, um, and obviously Harold uh, Faltermeyer was a big part of that. By the way, Skunk Baxter played the guitar solo on that. I don't know if you knew that. That uh, is her most rocking song. Yeah, it is, it, and it's interesting she run rock vocal because it is kind of rock, and it's yeah. mainly because of his contribution. Yeah, like it's a great solo. Yep. So Good. there you go, a great guitarist. Obviously, we have a lot of respect for. We've talked about him in the past. All right, so back to back to Donna Summer and back to Harold Faltermeyer. So this is a song from that album called Sunset People, and I want to play a couple clips from that. So here's the intro. So this obviously predated the 80s movie soundtrack stuff that Harold Faltermeyer became really even more famous for. But uh, th that you can see, it has some of those precursors, right? It has the repetition. It has the, uh, you know, very keyboard heavy sound there, right? Yeah. Um, here is another clip from that same song, a little bit of the chorus. See if you might recognize this, people. So I, I think it's an interesting evolution. I focus on this era, era because I think it's sort of the same things we were talking about early on in the show, which is what, what makes disco. You mentioned the hi-hat, you mentioned some of the other things, but it's the repetition. And when you talk about the keyboard becoming more central, I think Harold Faltermeyer is a big part of that, right? He's a yeah. keyboardist and he makes, 
the transition of this later era is much more keyboard centric, even though it has some of the same themes as earlier. So anyway. Yeah, and it's innovative. It's definitely influential. You can see the influence of what he did in the 70s, 79, and then going into like Axel F, which is a really massive hit for the 80s. Right. So it's like the synth use by Maroder and Faltemeyer together on this album is definitely influential beyond disco. Yeah. I would say that Sunset People is like almost new wave sounding in some yeah, ways. I, yeah, you know? I mean, it could be a yeah. missing person song. Right. Right, um, in, in some ways. So anyway, the, listening to all this uh, synth stuff hurts my brain, I have to say. Uh, I, I'm not the biggest uh, synth guy in the world. I, I know that is like a crushing insult to your uh, psyche. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, it's okay in pieces. It works in certain songs more than others. Um, it certainly can be effective and cool when it's limited, but I mean, Harold Faltemeyer is like off the deep end as far as synthesizer stuff. And there's nothing more dated sounding to me than this keyboard sort of heavy, uh, Yamaha DX seven, you know, overload here. Um, you know, going back, looking at this as a nostalgia trip, you know, to that era, it's sort of like bad trip to me because it's like reminded me a lot of that music that. I just couldn't, I mean, I ran from it as fast as I could at the time. I've learned to, in, in recent times, have more appreciation for it as we've examined some of these things and we'll continue to on, on this show. But it really wasn't my my uh, thing then. And, and you know, I could take it in small doses now. Um, as, a, as a callback to something else we talked about uh, in, in episode 20, in fact, uh, in Fast Times, uh, Donna Summer had a song on that soundtrack, which we widely panned uh, outside of a few uh, songs. And I, I wanted to play it. So this is a song called Highway Runner. This is on the Fast Time soundtrack. Not a great song, but for the life of no. me, I couldn't even figure out what scene this was. Yeah, like. what scene? It, I couldn't place this. This is like so weird. And it's definitely of her wanderer kind of like. Yeah. Very 80s streamlined kind of new wavy little phase. Not very memorable at all. And yeah, I can't even place that in the film. Yeah. No, I don't I, I was, know what it, it sort of vaguely sounds familiar, but it, yeah. it's not very memorable. Um, I, I do want to point out that of this era, there's a lot of artists who are kind of obsessed with whores, you know, like Donna Summer, a lot of the uh, lyrics in her song are talking about ladies of the night and, you know, uh, street walkers of various sorts. And it's just weird to me that that was such a thing. Pat Benatar, whom we'll talk about in a second, was also obviously love is a battlefield. 
um, it had those uh, themes as well, at least in the video. Um, so it's just an interesting thing at that time. I wonder if something else was going on where there was more um, examination of, of, of sex workers and, and, and things like that. Well, bad girls, you're talking about bad girls when you talk about that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and bad girls was related to a specific incident. So basically one of the women who worked in the record company office or something was out on the street and she was all dressed up and the cops kind of came up to her and thought she was a prostitute. <laughs> so, okay. so, uh, so Summer wrote a song, you know, she wrote those lyrics. Yeah. Obviously the music was more, uh, a uh, Faltermeyer and, 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 uh, Marauder. Okay. But, there you go. Yeah. So that's where that came from, but yeah, I don't know. And it, it could be because of just the sexy seventies, you know, be. or sexy early eighties. I don't know. Could, could be just as amusing as an aside anyway. Um, and for an evaluation kind of building to that, the influence to me of all the, of her and all this is undeniable, but I would question the quality of a large, a large part of it. I mean, there are the hits and some of the hits are really good songs. There's no question about it. They're catchy. Um, but I, the music is repetitive, maybe by design as we are talking about, but too repetitive to me in terms of like, I listened to a lot of these songs, on a lot of these albums. And after a short while, I couldn't keep track of one song from the other. You know what I mean? Other than the ones I yeah. know. They're, they're very, very similar. And, and again, to your point, maybe by design where one is supposed to flow into the other, it just got to be a little much. Um, I wonder what percent I actually was going to do the math on this and I just forgot to do it is what percentage of her songs have love in the title is it's got to be over 70 percent. I don't know if it's that I bet I'd be shocked if it was under 50 percent of, yeah. of the hits. There's I love you. There's our love. There's love. I feel love. There's love, love, to, love to love you, baby. So there's two in that one. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. There there's a a. There's a lot of love going on in Donna Summer's, uh, you know, uh, catalog. Yeah. Well, um, for listeners out there, uh, you know, you may, as a callback to our Dio episode, how many times he used magic and, yeah. you know, light and stuff like that. Evil. So, evil, yeah. evil. This challenges that in terms of, that, uh, of all those. And a lot of the lyrics, of course, are repetitive, too. It's about disco themes and scoring and you know, you know, sex, sexy seventies stuff, which is amusing, but it's almost too much. It's like every song is about the same thing. There's not a lot of, I would say depth there. The subject matter wise that the titles. Yeah. There's a lot of them that have love, but I would say subject matter wise, it might be more like 85 to 90% are about love. Yeah. Or, you know, or love I mean, adjacent. <laughs> yeah. Love adjacent. Right. Um, Anyway, one song that uh, I wanted to talk about, it's one of her hits, and it's really one of uh, an excellent song, is this one. Let me play a little bit of it. I think most people would recognize that song. It was a big hit. Um, yeah. it's, it's a good song. Uh, my wife loves the song. Uh, I was playing it this week and she was like, oh, keep playing that one. That was good. You know, keep let that. That's one awesome. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of nostalgia remembering this song, hearing it a lot as a kid. Obviously, it was a, it was a big hit. Um, lastly, before I get into my final evaluation here, I want to talk about She Works Hard for the Money uh, song. We played it at the beginning of the show. 
The video is amusing. I'm not going to go into a full breakdown of it. It's really not as as interesting as maybe some of the other videos. It's a very early video on MTV. It was very popular on MTV. But you mentioned the the genesis of She Works Hard for the Money being a bathroom attendant at, at Chazen's, a fancy restaurant in Beverly Hills in, in L.A. Um, the video is kind of amusing to me because it kind of goes over the top a little bit because the woman in the video who's working hard for the money actually has three jobs, which is really working hard for the money. But, but you know, she, she starts off where she is, uh, you know, cleaning floors um, early, you know, early in the morning. Then she's a waitress during the day. And then she's like, has a job as a, a seamstress of sorts at night, um, which is amazing that she can have that many jobs. Of course, in the video, she has ungrateful kids who don't appreciate her um, and make her life miserable and fight and scream. And even though she's bringing home groceries, walking over the proverbial and literal railroad tracks. I will be linking to this video. It's, it's very amusing. Um, also, you know, to make this poor woman's life even worse, she gets robbed. She comes home one day to a house and the whole house is in disarray. It looks like she was robbed. Maybe her kids just destroyed the house. But she finally has enough here and she can't take it anymore. And she takes to the streets um, with other women who are put upon and does the, uh, you know, poor woman uh, works hard for the money dancing in the streets thing, um, which is a bit of a trope at that time because wh- who else was dancing in the streets because they couldn't take it anymore? Pat Benatar and the hookers of Love is a Battlefield. That's right. right. And so I was thinking a better video would be if they had met in the streets, like the horde of she worked hard for the money women and the whore of the, ho- the hordes of the sex workers from Pat's brothel in Love is a Battlefield should meet and have a, a dance battle in the middle of the street. And then also meet the thriller mob for, you know, the zombie thriller mob and have a three-way kind of, you know, dance, a dance off West Side Story dance fight. What do you, what do you think about that? Idea? I think that's a great idea. That would be, that would have been fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's I wonder how many others of those, these are the three most iconic kind of group dance, you know, where, where people are, you know, erupting into these dances by the end of the videos, you know, these whole group dances. Yeah. So I don't know at the end, maybe there's other videos we're missing. You know, our listeners can, can give us comments about this, but by the end, there'd be so many bedraggled, you know, put upon people in the streets uh, doing their put upon bedraggled dances that it would almost be ultimately like Shaun of the dead where all the zombies have overtaken the, the, the streets um, all dancing their their dances of plight of various sorts. Um, and it's, it seems to always be women who are doing these dances uh, for the most part, too. So, all right, uh, on to the final valuation here. Um, you know, overall, I, I have a little bit of difficulty with this because, again, as I said, this music isn't particularly my jam for the most part. And so trying to be a, um, objective here, I, I did do a lot of research. I did listen to a lot of these songs. And I just couldn't get through a lot of the non-hits um, after like about 20 seconds. I was just like, all right, enough of this. Um, where will this be in the future? It's like, is there going to be a resurgence of Donald, Donna Summer appreciation? There will be a resurgence of Disco Donny appreciation. That's for sure. That's unquestionable. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I could find that photo <laughs> on the Instagram, but it's long lost. And, yeah, you know, that, yeah. That, would, that would be great. But Donna Summer... I think her hits will always be part of the disco canon. There's no question about that. And so to the degree that disco comes and goes in popularity, Donna Summer will come and go in popularity. 
I just don't see it being her non-hits really being something that gains a lot of future appreciation uh, widely. Um, to your point, as you said, there, did disco really ever go away? No, it became other things, right? Um, there has always been and probably always will be this genre of club dance music that people are into and need for various reasons. And that obviously the EDM music scene is huge, which I proudly know nothing about because I think it's mostly a bunch of knob twiddling garbage. That's a topic for a different episode. But there, I mean, disco is the precursor to that. There's no question about that. And that's huge, um, strangely, and befuddles me to no end. But um, yeah, there's still also a, a steady stream of pop queens that mine the same paths from the gay clubs to the mainstream, like Lady Gaga, very famously. Yeah, um, absolutely. Not necessarily disco, but that sort of, that the, that the gay club scene are huge influencers on our culture and and star makers, really, if we're just being uh, blunt about it. Um, I think if, if, you know, we're evaluating Donna Summer in the future versus her heyday is one of the biggest selling uh, artists, then there's no question. I'm way short on that. I don't think it will, she'll ever see the mass appreciation that her uh, was the peak of her uh, commercial uh, success. If we're evaluating it as compared to today, I'm I'm still short, but slightly so. I, I don't think she's very well known or even appreciated again beyond her hits today. Um, I was trying to think if I think people are going to, if I think, I think I can think, say that how many times, Jeff, but I was trying to recollect and come up with some sort of justification to say, is there anything intrinsic here that people are going to discover in the future, some hidden quality, some great undiscovered genius, some really um, interesting things that could be uncovered by future generations? And I couldn't find it. It wasn't apparent to me. I don't see it personally. I do think her hits, again, will always be part of the, the disco playlist. But beyond that, I just don't see that much. So um, I think... Disco in itself, I'm probably, you know, short on too. That's a, maybe a, a different episode to go into where we can continue to reflect upon that as we talk about the Bee Gees and others. But I, I'm pretty short here. I, I just don't see this being hugely valued in the future. So I will hand it over to you. Well, that was better than I expected. I worried we were going to have some terrible take from you. So I was good. At, that's why I wanted to go last. I didn't want people to have that sour impression of Donna Summer. But your take was completely reasonable. And I agree with a lot of it. Uh, it wasn't, it's, you know, I almost thought this was going to be more of a battle because Jeff was texting me. He's like, I'm really not digging this shit. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> well, that's true. like sorry, because this, of course, is my thing. This was my idea to do this one. Um, you know, and I think most of the time we kind of like the stuff we're doing. And, you know, it's kind of hard when we don't. It, I, I, I thought this was going to be much more like a real contentious thing, like the Doors episode, which is yeah. probably our most contentious where we just absolutely disagree you know um but anyway i don't think we're too far apart here but i do i i'm just going to come up front and say i'm much more long i'm on the side of long but i'm not like ridiculously long i actually thought i was going to be when i went into this exercise and coming out of it i do think a lot of jeff's points are true and i'm going to go into those but let's start with the most important stuff what i consider the most important stuff the stuff that really does stand the test of time the innovative stuff the first of course is the first disco real disco song out there uh the first iconic disco song is i think love to love you baby it's probably the most 
the first important one. Uh, there were definitely precursors, as I mentioned, in our kind of disco prehistory. But this is the one. This is really the one. And um, uh, let's talk. Let's play a clip of Donna Summer talking about how this song came to be. So, I mean, it was very funny to everybody involved but me, you know. And then when I went into the studio, I kept laughing. It was hysterical. And uh, at some point, I, I said, I got to take this seriously and just do it as if I were someone who were taking it seriously. And so I did it that way and imagined myself with a man after a man that I was in, madly in love with after he'd been away for a certain length of time. And that's how Love to Love You was sort of created. <laughs> Created. Yeah, it was a creation. And um... all right. So there you go. That's her talking about doing. I'll talk more to say about that. First, what we're going to do, though, is play the entire 17 minute version of this song. So, Jeff, go, actually, I'm kidding. Let's just play the clip. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to be doing any tubing here on uh the, our... oh, yeah. yeah that's right <laughs> zoom tubing jeffrey tubing no no but you could kind of see why you might want to um so anyway so that song originally you know it was like a three or four minute song as i mentioned but what ended up happening is neil bogart got a hold of the song and he had a party and he just people kept wanting to hear it again they kept playing repeat 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 so he's like you know, we need to make a really long version of the song for the clubs, et cetera. Um, and of course, some people said it was so Neil Bogart could use it for his private life with his wife and other mistresses. Mm. Um, but, you know, as 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 something to get get, uh, you know, freaky Sound. with. Yeah. Right. Um, at any rate. Uh, so they created a 17 minute version. It was the first side of the album type, you know, album of the same title. And this is not actually that for 17 minutes there's like different instruments that come and go but it's generally kind of this hypnotic lulling thing i mean it's actually not as boring as you would think it would be but it is a bit much for 17 minutes but of course it's made to be danced to and people liked it so much they kind of got so into it um now that's sort of the story but you know the the way she sings it she said she was inspired by marilyn monroe right mm. like Happy birthday, Mr. President. You can hear it. It's kind of got a Betty Boop, Marilyn Monroe kind of cutesy. It's not her usual way of singing if you hear her other material, um, but it's interesting. Um, and of course, the orgasm sounds uh, that she makes, um, she said it was kind of intended to fill the space and give Moroder an idea of what to, else to do. But that doesn't make any sense to me, because actually in that quote, that's an interview with uh, the famous kind of gossip columnist Rona Barrett. And that quote, she said she was obviously trying to make it sexy, but having a hard time not laughing, you know, yeah. kind of whole thing because it was so silly to her but this really did affect people and it became such a sensation and i do think it's so innovative that whole hypnotic kind of 
the whole idea of the song, the concept of it was just something that had never really been done before. Um, musically, I don't think it's as interesting as the next um, as the next song. Uh, and and the next one I want to talk about is I think her most significant contribution, even though it's not her vocals on it aren't the best she would do. I think culturally, this is the one that stands the test of time, the one that I am completely long on. These two really are are the reason I'm long more than anything else, although I do have some other things to say about Donna Summer's talent. But this one is I Feel Love. And let's listen to Giorgio Moroder talk about this one and how it came to be. In the UK, at least, you're best known for is, is I Feel Love. And it's sort of seen as such a influential uh, piece of music. I mean, where was the kind of spark for that? The, the, that that rolling, um, constantly undulating sort of baseline. I think, if I remember, I went back to look at the movie of, of uh, Star Wars, uh, which had a, a scene called La Cantina, where they supposedly played the, the music of the future. Yeah. And I didn't think it was the music <laughs> of the future. It looked like, but it didn't sound like. So I thought the only way to do it is to do it with, with the computers, only computers. So. I had this big modular Moog and I had uh, my guy and I said, okay, I don't know how to start, but let's start with the bass line. We put a click on, I could play dun, 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 and then obviously speed it up or down. And then when we mix it down, the original was dun, 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 dun. And uh, Jürgen Koppers, my my sound engineer, added a delay. Mm. And suddenly it sounded... I said, oh, that's a whole new... That yeah. was the key moment. The song was done. You know, I, I just got to say here that um, yeah, I put the Star Wars nerds on blast pretty hard in the Fart Awakens episode. Um, but I got your back now, Star Wars nerds, is because he said that was a relic of the future Star Wars music. Um, not, but Star Wars happened a long time ago right. in a galaxy far, far away. So Giorgio was completely wrong there. And Star Wars nerds, I got you. That was a long time ago. It was a past relic, at least compared to Earth time. So there right. you go. There you go. Sorry. There you go. So So yeah, you could see, though, that he was trying to create something new and Obviously, he's coming from Germany. Him and Harold Baltemeyer were synthesizer players and, and composers. And, and they're coming from this, you know, country where there's already bands like Kraftwerk and, you know, uh, Klaus Schultz and Tangerine Dream doing really innovative stuff with synthesizers. But what they did was they put this into a mainstream dance song and they had this kind of pulsating rhythm that uh, was really like nothing that had been that mainstream before. And I actually argue it's the com combination of adding Donna Summer with that is something that had never been done at all before. And I think it still stands the test of time today. Let's listen to it.
dude, you know that keyboard part? You know what it sounds like to me? What? The dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. Yeah, it's got that influence. It also has like kind of the influence, like one of these days, that kind of repetition. Yeah. Even though that's a bass, it's it that. I mean, you can see the on the run that, song, you know, that. The, oh, yeah. That, yeah. 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 That, I'm yeah. sure they were influenced by that. I mean, again, that's that artsy kind of prog rock thing coming together with dance music. You yeah. know, it's like, like I said, those guys are from Germany and this stuff was in the air. Yeah. On the run actually is very similar to that. It's just not as danceable, I guess. But then you have her coming in, you know, and and the thing I like about her and the way she sings these two songs, Love to Love You and I Feel Love, is she tailors her voice to the mood of the song. Yeah. It's not, it's not like she's virtuosic in either of these songs, really. You'll hear that more later, but on some other songs, uh, because she definitely can be. But she's just trying to create a mood. And, and the way they work together to create a mood is so hypnotic. And it's that same you know, like you said, you were short on it because it's so repetitive, right? Yeah. But but it's like, that's kind of what makes it work for me. And that's kind of what made it work, I think, for people dancing or whatever. And, you know, during this time, uh, David Bowie and Brian Eno were in Berlin working on the album Low, which is very experimental with electronics. They heard this and Brian Eno told David Bowie, he's like, I think this is the future of club music for the next 30 years. And David Bowie agreed with them. And then when John Lennon heard this, he kind of just kept repeating to himself, this is the future. This is the future. He was completely blown away by this thing he'd heard. I don't know if he was happy about that, you know, because obviously not the kind of thing he was he was doing, but he was really, in, you know, interested in it from that perspective. People were kind of blown away by this when it came out. It was a really big hit. Um, and I think of any if, you know, there's all these books you can get, like the songs that changed rock and roll. And it's like 50 songs that changed rock and roll. For me, this would be right in there. Like it's, it's one of the songs, not rock and roll, but maybe popular music, you know, but it's one of the songs I think that was a historical kind of benchmark in the evolution of music for better or worse, because obviously this led to a lot of the EDM stuff you're talking about. You didn't like, but it is, you know, so innovative. And then of course we talked about, I mentioned this earlier in the show, you know, we talked about Berlin sex. I mean, that's a direct oh, no question, block from this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they were super influenced by Marauder and then they eventually worked with them, right. you know, after that. So I think of the of my evaluation, these two things I just went over are the most important contributions of Donna Summer and Georgia Marauder ever. Um, it's not my favorite Georgia Marauder. My favorite is with Sparks, as I mentioned, but um, I really do. Uh, I Feel Love is, I think, one of the greatest songs of all time just because it was such something so new. Um, and, you know, I like it anyway because I'm into his sound and I love that kind of 70s Moog sound. Now, what's interesting is Robert Moog, the actual inventor of the technology that's used in some of the some of the technology that's used in the song, didn't like it. Yeah. He was like, he didn't like the way they did the delay. He didn't like the way that the voice and the, and the synth interacted. And he's like, what are the musicians supposed to do on stage? I'm all, obviously you've never seen Depeche Mode, uh, you know, Robert Moog, you know, <laughs> yeah. so... Or or craft work, you know they they're they're just standing at their synths, kind of moving around, and people are going nuts. So yeah. it must. Or what about the guy just pressing two buttons on his Macintosh? You know, going yeah. hey, waving his arm in the air. Yeah. So obviously that was before all that happened. Okay, so that's kind of her cultural. The most importance of her cultural contribution are those two songs. But 
Uh, as far as why I'm more along on her in general, I think um, I really think she's an underrated singer. I mean, obviously, people know she's a technically good singer, but I don't people think people realize what a powerhouse she was. And I want to play a couple of clips that show this. Uh, one of them is from probably might be my favorite song by her. I don't know. I have a few. I, I feel love is one of them, but I really love this song, Dim All the Lights. And she really vocal power during this song. So. All those, all that breath training at work. Let's hear it. you heard that transition to the chorus where she says let it fill you up it's like 20 seconds so i would encourage any of you take a deep breath and try to do that good luck because you won't be able to i've tried yeah. <laughs> and it's like it's like she she fucking holds that note forever it's just so awesome and of course if you did it it wouldn't sound as good you know right. but anyway that's kind of you know that's that breath training at work and obviously a lot of great singers can do that you know an opera singer probably can hold it twice as long i don't know but well, bruce dickinson on hallowed be thy name holds that note almost as long i have to say yeah well they, you know He's one of those guys, he right? Is, he, he is. Yeah. He's he's got powerful lungs too. So I'm just gonna say, um, you know, that's an example of her. I think it's a great catchy song too. It's a great melody, um, and you know, it's just it was also completely written by her. It was probably one of her better songs. She, oh, it's a good song, you know. And anyway, it's one of one of the up ones up there. Okay, so this next one is a cover. You know, she did a few covers, as I mentioned. She did the Barry Manilow song "Could It Be Magic." I really like her version of that. I, that's probably my favorite song by him, anyway. Um, and she does this song MacArthur Park. Now, this song was was a originally created by a songwriter and performer named Jimmy Webb. This song sucks. It's just so stupid. Cake out in the rain, all this stuff. It's just one of these cornball songs, whatever. But I actually think Donna Summer's version is awesome. And I think it's awesome because she sings the shit out of it. Um, and so we're going to play a little clip and talk about this cover. This was one of her number ones, MacArthur Park.
Okay. So, so again, her vocal power is insane on this. She sings the shit out of it. It's great. She takes a, a cornball song and makes it something kind of elevates it. But I will say, and I was talking about this with Jeff, we're going to talk about this a little bit, that that laugh at the end, I think every time that plays, a drag angel gets its wings. This, it's like <laughs> the most gay things. It's like, it's like the, it's like the Wizard of Oz friend of Dorothy moment times a million. And I almost wonder if my enjoyment of that may mean that I'm actually kind of gay. I don't know. Well, um, I, I well, let, let's examine the facts, okay? This episode was your idea, right, Donna yeah, Summer? Yeah, yeah, I love disco. You love disco. disco. Alicia Bridges' impression, check, check. Yep. The David Lee Roth, Roth poster uh, situation that we've talked about, right? Right, we, that hung on my wall way longer than all? I probably should have, and I had questioned myself <laughs> as to whether I should have on the wall. I had some questions, so, you know. Um, um, yeah, do you have bandanas? And uh, are you party size? That's the other. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, from cruising, <laughs> a movie. Believe me, I don't know if we can handle cruising. That might be too much of a controversial <laughs> episode for us. But we have both seen that movie. Um, but yeah, again, the, it, it, it's weird because you know, as a kid, I always, I never had a girlfriend just because I was ugly and shy, and you know, I always loved the Oscars. So my parents were kind of wondering about yeah. me. Well, but but at any rate, uh, you know. I, it's I'm not too late if you want, big, if you have an announcement for us. I happen to like a lot of the gay cultural things, you know, and, yeah. and, and I do love disco. I do love this song. And I love that uh, Wicked Witch cackle at the end. <laughs> um, at any rate. So again, that's her taking this shitty song. If you, you will put a link to the original so you can hear how cornball it is. I, you know, my wife likes the original too. And, you know, she says it's good, but I, I prefer the disco Donna Summer version. Yeah. Okay. So the last dance we're going to do is the last dance. This is the great hit from the really not great. Thank God it's Friday. And thank God Donna Summer stuck to singing and didn't go to acting other than the, of course, the, uh, she works hard for the money music video, which she acquits herself fine in, but she is really bad as you heard in the clip in this movie. But her moment of greatness is when she finally sings this song, uh, which also won an Oscar, which I didn't mention before. Um, it didn't; she didn't win it because Paul Jabara wrote it, but he wrote he won for that song and she performed it at the Oscars. So let's listen to "Let's Dance." Again, vocal chops. I mean, yep. she's just singing the shit out of that. Uh, I do like the song too. I think the lyrics are great, you know, to hold me, to scold me when I'm bad. I'm so, so bad. Very memorable. Um, you know, it's a total masterpiece to me, a disco masterpiece, probably one of my top 10 uh, disco songs, uh, either that or Dim All the Lights, which is not as well known. Uh, this is probably the, I would say, if you're going to choose one iconic Donna Summer song, this might be it. 
uh, even though um, I feel love is kind of the real uh, elephant in the room as far as innovation. This one is the one I think where Donna Summer quits. Her, uh, I feel love, I think, is more of a Giorgio show. I think uh, this one is more of a Donna show. But again, she has so many great hits. I mean, Heaven Knows with Brooklyn Dreams is great, too, um, that I mentioned. Hot Stuff, you know, kind of disco rock song with the great guitar part. Bad Girls, Toot Toot, Beep Beep, so iconic. Her duet with Donna, with Barbara Streisand. I mean, she hangs in there with one of the all-time great belters, um, and it's a good song. And then I also like, uh, you know, her post, uh, her a couple of her post uh, disco songs. She works hard for the money. Is really memorable. And this time, I know it's for real. She also belts it out and is great on it. Um, even though, you know, again, those are fine. They're not her peak. Uh, and if she just had those, we wouldn't even be having this episode. So, okay. What I'm kind of tending toward on the short side of Donna Summer is, of course, her um, she's so tied to disco. She's so in that pocket, whereas we talked about Earth, Wind and Fire, and I'll be talking about them throughout this evaluation because it kind of reminded me of them mm-hmm. uh, doing this uh, or, you know, um, some of my feelings about it. And the period of their peak was the same. So I would say, you know, she's so tied to this movement. That that's I, I feel like that's why we had to talk about disco so explicitly at the beginning, just to even set the scene, because she's really you can't pull her away from the movement, even though she works hard for the money. And this time I know it's for real or fine. You know, they're just not where it's at with her. Um, she she I think she's, again, kind of similar to Pat Benatar with me. She never really reached a potential. If she had had better songwriters. Maybe if she stuck with Giorgio, uh, you know, and and. I don't know. She did do stuff with Harold Baltimore. I mean, some of the worst 80s stuff. I mean, when her 80s stuff is bad, it's so, so bad. Yeah. Let's just say that. Um, But, you know, someone like Diana Ross, you know, was able to come back in the 80s a little bit. She had done all that 60s work. You know, someone like Barbara Streisand, they're more generalists. They could do more stuff. And I feel like Donna Summer had the vocal talent to do that. She just didn't. I mean, she did do that weird Germanic stuff and hair at the beginning, but you know, that stuff was just Vossermann. Vossermann, right? Um, I mean, you know, uh I think uh she only uh, the other thing is uh her album content, you know, these weird concept albums, they're kind of boring. Uh, they're not really great. The hits stand out. The album tracks are boring. As Jeff mentioned, he had trouble listening to them. I totally agree. I do not like, she had this one, um, called try. We can make it. Let me, let me look this up real quick. Cause I have it here. I breezed by it. Um, this song that was the follow-up to love, love to love you, baby was called try it. I know we can make it. And it was also 17, uh, minutes long and it was an attempt to repeat the success of that and lightning did not strike twice let's just say this is a really 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 boring 17 minutes good luck with it it's not Mm -hmm. good it's not catchy so when you know a lot of times she basically um you know her album content is just weak uh except for bad girls bad girls is not a perfect album but it's really solid for being a double album and it's it's got so much good stuff on it um, Jeff played Sunset People from that. I would also include that among a nice, mi- that was a single, it didn't chart, but it was a minor hit. Um, and then, you know, uh, she was basically really single based. I mean, her The Wanderer is kind of an interesting album. You know, it's not great, but it's maybe better than her other stuff. 
because it's kind of her going in a different direction. But most of her albums just don't hold up very well. It's only really Bad Girls and then the live album and the greatest hits that are that are really interesting. Um, now, the long, okay, singles between 76 and 79 are really hard to argue with for me. I On the radio, that compilation is one of my favorite compilations of all time. I listen to it quite often. Um, I put it on. I think it's really stellar. While you're I, at, the, at the Castro Clubs or outside yeah, of it? Right. That's right, dude. That's right. I do my own <laughs> private dancing. Yeah. In front of the mirror to it. Um, right. So those, so not only is disco songs, but also Jeff played on the radio. I think on the radio is a great pop song. So that's another one. Uh, love to love you, baby. And I feel love is kind of what music would become in a lot of ways. Uh, especially today where we have a lot of dance music. I really think in the battle for rock and disco, disco did just fine. You know, in the long run, disco itself, as we mentioned, that what we call disco, all of the elements, that movement died, but it changed. And we have this disco adjacent stuff that just continues on. And in a way, like dance music has become the popular music. Yeah, that's true. If you look you know? at the charts, it's really about dance music. And hip hop, right? which, you know, you could argue has those elements as well. To some right. I mean, hip hop yeah. was created from the wreckage of disco, right? What was the first uh, hip hop song? Rapper's Delight. It's essentially Good Times by Chic yeah. with rap on top of it, right? So yeah. it's a very disco song was the first hip hop major song. Um, so you could argue that. The other, but the thing is, is what's interesting is, uh, you know, the whole Hall of Fame thing is interesting to me. I I do think because she was like this major American, African-American woman artist who kind of led this whole genre herself. I mean, obviously the Bee Gees were there too. I, I get the Hall of Fame thing and I, I'm an advocate, but at the same time, I almost wish you could just induct songs into the Hall of Fame because I would induct like, I feel love and love to love you baby in the Hall of Fame. It's like, I feel the same way about Guns N' Roses. I think as a band, they don't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, but just that one album, Appetite for Destruction, deserves to be. Because I think their other stuff is mostly garbage. Yeah. You know, a few songs here and there, but I think as a band, I mean, Chinese Democracy, you know, Use Your Illusions. I mean, maybe if they made that one album, it'd be better, but I don't, I don't give a shit about that stuff. But Appetite obviously changed everything and is a landmark. And it's a, one of the classic debut albums of all time. So I kind of feel that way. I just don't feel like some of these artists, I almost want to say I'm long on parts of them yeah, rather than that. the whole thing. And I kind of feel like that. Now, the other, and, and I mentioned the potential thing, but I got to give it up to her for her singing prowess. Of course, singing does not necessarily mean you're going to stand the test of time. There are plenty of great singers over the past. You know, I don't know if Michael Bolton stands the test of time. Obviously, he had the vocal chops, but, you know, uh, not sure if that is enough. I, um, I think he'll be remembered for being made fun of more than his actual music career. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think he has been, you know, with Lonely Planet doing shit with him and stuff. Um, it's kind of he's making fun of himself. Right. Yeah. So when I think about Donna Summer and I think about this period, I think about Earth, Wind and Fire. and when I think about how long I am on her, I have to compare it to them because they were similar, right? They, they don't have once, they have a few pretty great albums, which she doesn't have. And, but they just like musically, they just cover so much more, you know, she's so limited to this disco thing and her non-disco stuff is not great. It's not really even Stand the test. It's not even CFX worthy to me to even really talk about that stuff much, but um, except as a negative in in her side. But the positive 
you know, they just did so much more musically and did so much more interesting things. There's more depth and breadth to everything they did. More depth and breadth. And they also had this crossover appeal to wide audiences that she had within the context of disco, but not to the level they had. They had it on a different, broader level. And of course they do jazz music and fusion and stuff like that. And the instrumentation and the songwriting sophistication and So I have to compare it to them. And I just don't feel like I'm as long on her as them, but I am long on disco in general. As I mentioned, this whole disco adjacent thing has been long. It's been proven to be. And I think the music has merit, at least done by the best practitioners, which would mainly be, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire when they were doing it, some of the other soul artists when they were doing it. Uh, Obviously, the Bee Gees being a big, the big elephant in the room. Not not Kiss, though. Not, not necessarily kiss, but I, I do like miss you. And I like one of these nights and yeah. I like, do you think I'm sexy? Even though it's a ripoff of a Brazil, you know, Brazilian song. Um, but, but anyway, uh, you know, I would say overall, because I'm long on disco and because she's so inextricably linked to it, I'm ultimately long. Uh, you know, I got to be long on the queen of disco uh, and, or AKA the queen of sex rock because, yeah. you know, um, but at any rate, I think, um, yeah, I think I'm long in the end, but I don't think we disagree as much as I thought we were going to heading into this. And I think I was going to be more dramatically kind of overrating her than I do. Um, and I think ultimately I'm not super long. I'm just just over the over the hill there. OK, well, there you have it. Um, we will wrap up episode 27. Donna Summer, uh, thank you for listening here. Hopefully you found it interesting. Uh, Let your friends know about this uh, podcast if you find it amusing or worthwhile. And you can go to our Instagram and all that stuff is linked in the show notes. So we will check out here. We will sign off with, um, you know, given the slips news here um, of uh, his new theme song. And we will see you next time. (laughs) 